You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Please be seated. Well, if you've been with us at all uh, in the month of December and the season of Advent, you'll know that we're in a sermon series right now we're calling The Mothers of Jesus. Uh, We're looking at um, the first, really the first page of the New Testament, which is the genealogy of Jesus according to Matthew. Um, And there's so many surprising things we've been saying about this genealogy. um, And one of the most surprising things is the inclusion of women um, at a time when no woman would have ever been included in an ancient genealogy. And not only the fact of these women in this genealogy, but the who, who the women were, that all of them in some ways were outsiders, were women of disgrace in some ways. And yet Matthew chose to include these women to say, this is the family of Jesus, that all are invited into this family, that we are included uh, among them, that God is a God of welcome and grace. So we've been looking at these women. We've looked at three of them uh, so far. Um, and today we're turning, we've looked at Two of, two of them, two of them so far, and today we're turning to the third, um, the person of Ruth. Um, and bringing the sermon today is my dear friend Jennifer Parham. Um, Jennifer is an elder here at Third. She's a lawyer by day. She also worked for one of our mission partners for about over 10 years, Needles Eye Ministry. Um, what's fascinating about Jennifer is that I asked her um, this week, how long have you been at Third? And she said, 50 years. I don't know if anybody here has been here. She doesn't even look like she's that old, but yes, she was baptized and raised here. And even more than that, she is a fifth-generation member um, of this church. Her great-grandmother raised her grandmother um, in this church. So she is also the product of a long and faithful legacy of the gospel um, expressed in this community. So she's also, um, we asked her to preach because she has been a student of the Book of Ruth. She studied the Book of Ruth for many years. Um, and knows it better probably than anybody, certainly better than me. So grateful that she's here to be with us. So let me pray for us as we go to God's Word. Father, thank you so much for your grace that is expressed in this list of people um, in this genealogy in Matthew 1. And we pray that you would anoint uh, Jennifer today as she comes to speak your word. We pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word today, that it would be more than just an empty word, but that we would respond to your word with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. And as Corey indicated, you are my family, in fact. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. You know, so much of my life has been bound up in rules. And it appears that bright lines might actually be a genetic thing for me because my mom tells the story of a time when I was just a toddler and she comes into my room and finds that I have lined up every single one of my toys in a perfectly straight line across the room. Well, I never even liked coloring outside of the lines and not much has changed. I am, after after all, a lawyer. I am a professional rule follower. And rules are nice and neat. However, I also find that I have a real love for the Impressionist art, both art and music, which is a little bit surprising because Impressionists are all about 
the hint, the sense, the feeling of the thing, and not the actual outline or the structure of it. So one of my favorite paintings is a Claude Monet painting. And this painting I actually had up in my dorm room at UVA when I was a college student, and it still hangs over my desk at home. There is not a straight line to be found in that painting. Another of my favorites is a piece of music by the composer Claude Debussy, and it's called Claire de Lune. Many of you probably know it well. If you don't know the name, you might know the sound of it. And our own Susan Pottle has agreed to play a few bars for us this morning. Susan, do you sense the haunting melody, the feel of that music? Again, no straight lines. What you get is the sense. The French Claire de Lune means moonlight. You get the sense of the cool moonlight cascading. Well, maybe I am drawn to Impressionism, despite being a rule follower, for the same reason that I am drawn to the Book of Ruth. Now, if you're familiar with the Book of Ruth, you're probably thinking to yourself, JP's lost her mind. What is she talking about? How is the Book of Ruth like Impressionism? Well, the Book of Ruth is actually a book about a bunch of folks who just trample right over lines. They're not much on boundaries. So I'm talking about, of course, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Um, Christian scholars over the past 20 years have done a tremendous amount of work looking into the book of Ruth and have found incredible depth in it that Christianity seemed to have lost for a while. Jewish scholars have always known this about the book of Ruth. And what they have found is really interesting. So the book of Ruth is a beautiful piece of literature. If you haven't read it, it's just four chapters. It's a quick read. And it's written almost as a play in four chapters. It would be lovely to go and sit and read the book of Ruth and enjoy the beauty of it. It's also one of only two, two books of the Bible named for women. But before we dive deeply into the book of Ruth, I want to give you some background, a little bit of a principle that underlies the entirety of the book of Ruth. And Corey mentioned this last week, if you happen to have heard his sermon. There's a word that's really important that underpins everything in Ruth and really in the entirety of the Old Testament. And that word is hesed. Or if you had a little more Hebrew than I have, you might say like chesed. Um, so I'm going to ask you all to join me right now together. On the count of three, I want to ask you to join me saying the word hesed because it's going to come up again and again today. Ready? One, two, three. Hesed. Well done, everybody. So hesed is one of the most important words in the Old Testament, and it occurs 240 times. Now, it only shows up in the text three times in the book of Ruth, but as we'll see today, there is not a part of the book of Ruth that's not touched by this word. Now, it is not a word that is easily translated into English. You'll see in some text today that, for example, the NIV translates it sometimes as kindness, that is a lousy translation. You really need a whole paragraph of English to give a good definition of hesed. So I want to share with you a couple of my favorite definitions of hesed. This one is the consistent, 
ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our Father God has said. Well, scholar Paul Miller has a shorter version of that that I also really like. And his version is, has said, is love with no exit strategy. Isn't that powerful? Love with no exit strategy. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Ruth, and Julie Wilson, if you're here, thank you for introducing me to that book <laughs> that, that Carolyn Custis James wrote. Carolyn Custis James says, in a nutshell, has said is the gospel lived out. So here in the book of Ruth, what we're looking for today is how does the gospel get lived out in the book of Ruth? Well, I think that's a clue as to the reason, the fact that the the gospel is being lived out in the book of Ruth is a clue as to why Matthew might have included it in his genealogy of Jesus. So today we're going to see how the, the concept of hesed permeates the book of Ruth at every turn. Now, with that backdrop, let's look at the story together. And I'm going to tell you the story, and if you know it and you've heard it before, I want you to listen with fresh ears, because this is not the Disney fairy tale type of story that you probably learned in Sunday school, and that even I here learned in Sunday school. As the book of Ruth opens, it's the time of the judges, and the last verse of the book of Judges really says it all about what was going on in Israel at the time. The last line says, and everybody was doing whatever they thought was right. Kind of sounds like a time now. Um, But it wasn't a good sign for the culture of Israel. And we learn at the beginning of the book that Naomi had moved from Bethlehem in Israel with her husband and their sons to the land of Moab. Now that's a strange place to go because Moab and Israel were sort of mortal enemies. But that's where they went uh, during a famine in Israel. And while they were there, Naomi's husband passed away. Her two sons married Moabite women. Again, kind of a no-no, but they did. And then, after about 10 years of, of being married to these Moabite women, the sons also die. So here we have three women. And as we've heard out in prior sermons um, on this series, we've learned that women really only had their source of protection and safety from the men in their lives, their fathers, their husbands, their sons. So now we have three women who are living in Moab without any source of protection or resources. And so about that time, Naomi hears that in fact there is food in Israel again, and she decides to pack up and go back to Israel, bringing with her her two daughters-in-law. And she doesn't get very far out of town uh, before she realizes that maybe it's not in the best interest of her Moabite daughters-in-law to take them back to Israel, where she has absolutely no way to support them. And so she says to them, go back. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. What's that word? Hesed. It's a terrible translation, kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So this is our first act of hesed. It's the first appearance of the word hesed, but it's also our first act of hesed in the book of Ruth. So what we have here is 
despite the fact that Naomi has lost it all, she is willing to has said her daughters-in-law enough to send them back where they might have an actual future, a hope for a better life. So she sends them back. But they're a little bit stubborn and they don't want to go because they love her. And so they protest and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But eventually, Naomi reasons with them and says, listen, it's the right thing to do. And Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, sees the reasoning and says, okay. And she, she gives, gives Naomi a kiss and she returns to Moab, but not Ruth. Ruth throws her arms around Naomi and clings to her. And she says this. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death, separates you and me. Now, this is probably the most familiar statement of the entire book of Ruth, and some of you may even have like Ruth 1.16 engraved inside your wedding bands. But this is, it's a lovely, lovely sentiment in a wedding, but this is one woman making a commitment to another woman, and it is the strongest commitment that one human being makes to another in all of Scripture. Ruth has thrown her lot in with her mother-in-law. And you can see there are four things that she says, I'll go where you go. If you stay somewhere, I'm going to stay with you. Where you die, I'm going to go there and I'm going to be buried with you. And she's going to be with Naomi's people and not her own. And perhaps most significantly of all, Naomi's God is going to be her God. She's giving up all the Moabite idols and she is going in, all in, with Naomi and with Yahweh. It's a beautiful picture, an extraordinary commitment. Here's what Carolyn Custis James says about Ruth. The young Moabite widow discards cultural protocol, her own hopes of happiness, and even plain reason when she embraces Naomi's terrifying God and binds herself for life to her mother-in-law. Ruth herself embodies the utter difference the gospel makes in us and in our relationships with others, generations before Jesus was born. So here we see the movement of the gospel all the way back in the book of Ruth. In other words, we've got Ruth making a commitment of love with no exit strategy. So Naomi, in the face of this commitment, relents and takes Ruth with her back to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, it just so happens that it is the beginning of the barley harvest. And of course, now Ruth has made this commitment to take care of um, her mother-in-law, and she's got to find a way to do that. So she decides to go into the fields and begin a process of what is called gleaning. Now, I'm just going to give you a little aside because I see in my line of sight two young women who were in a Bible study with me for many years while I was a youth leader here at Third. And Rachel and Elizabeth, what did we call our Bible study? 
the gleaners because of this very text. So thank you, Rachel and Elizabeth, for your friendship these many years. So what is gleaning? You might have a sense, if you grew up in the church, you might have a sense of what gleaning is. So gleaning was one of the laws that God gave the Israelites to protect the poor. And what it said was that landowners couldn't harvest right around the edges of their field, nor could they go back over the field a second time to get what was missed the first time. And the idea was that that way, those who were poor had an opportunity to glean the fields. And in that, they might find a way to support themselves. It was meant to be a protection for the poor. So Ruth goes and she gleans in a field. But we learn a little bit later in the chapter that she actually, when she goes, she goes to the overseer of the workers and she says, um, can I like follow behind your workers? Which may not make a lot of sense to us, but really what she's doing there is blowing right past her rights of gleaning into something much larger. And I don't know whether she did it out of ignorance for how the gleaning laws worked, or whether she did it because she was that desperate to find a way to support her mother-in-law. But for whatever reason, she cleans in the field and, um, and she stays there. And then it just so happens, this phrase comes up a lot in the book of Ruth, it just so happens that while she's cleaning in the field, the owner of the field, Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of Naomi's, comes by and he greets the workers in the field with a blessing and joy. And you can begin to see in that a little bit of his character because his immediate reaction to the overseer is, whose woman is that? He notices her. He knows enough to know she's not part of his group. Maybe it was her dress that gave her away. And he asked the overseer, whose woman is that? Well, of course she had to be somebody's because in that culture, a woman couldn't be on her own. But then she, he learns from the overseer that in fact, this is Ruth the Moabitess. And in fact, at least a third of the times in the book of Ruth that Ruth is named, it's either Ruth the Moabitess or just the Moabitess. So her identity as a stranger in a strange land follows her throughout this book. And I was so excited to hear about, again, about Paul's ministry. Think about what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. Many of us have never done that. But that is the experience of Ruth. So Boaz looks out on Ruth, and instead of tossing her out for far exceeding the gleaning rules, he has a, a conversation with her. And he invites her to be part of dining with his workers, which she, he certainly didn't have to do, and he doesn't blow up at her for exceeding the boundaries of gleaning. He offers her our third instance of hesed. His grace, graciousness towards her abounds. So now we've had Naomi offering hesed and Ruth offering hesed, and now we see Boaz offering hesed. And at, in light of that, we see Ruth just fall on her face in front of Boaz, grateful for his generosity. And she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? a foreigner. And Boaz gives her a beautiful reply. 
I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord, see his tone here, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He is blessing Ruth beyond anything she could have expected. And interestingly, that prayer that he prays for her, he's going to be the fulfillment of that in just another chapter. It's a beautiful move of the work of Hesed in their lives. Well, after lunch, Ruth goes back into the field and continues to glean. But what we also find out is that Ruth goes to his workers and he tells them to to protect her, to make sure that she's not harmed. And he also tells them to slide a few extra sheaves of barley out for her to pick up. He's ensuring that she and her mother-in-law will have the best opportunity to survive. So Ruth goes home that night with arms full of barley and tells the story that she was gleaning in this field and that she met a man named Boaz. And Naomi says, well, guess what? Boaz happens to be a near relative of my husband. And she pronounces a blessing over Boaz. There's lots of blessing going on in the story. And Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing kindness, meaning hesed, to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. You might have heard the term kinsman redeemers. So it's the second time that the word appears in the text, but we keep seeing this movement of hesed. We also then find out that Ruth now knows that, in fact, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband. So Ruth continues through the end of the harvest to to glean in the fields of Boaz. But meanwhile, Naomi is cooking up a plan. So Naomi realizes she really has nothing to offer to Ruth, who has been, as it says later in the scriptures, better than seven sons to her. And so she concocts this plan that involves Boaz, and she decides that she's going to direct Ruth to go and dress in her finest clothes while the, the threshing of the barley is going on at the end of the harvest. And she instructs her to put those clothes on and wear beautiful perfume and go and lie down at the feet of Boaz and wait for Boaz's instructions. Well, she does that, Ruth does that, but Ruth is never good with just following the rules. So she packs in something else here. When she does this, and she uncovers Boaz's feet when she lies down, um, she's going to add something to it. First of all, she doesn't even wait for Boaz to give her instructions, which is what Naomi told her to do. She says instead a couple of things. Her response is, would you marry me? And two, would you serve as our kinsman redeemer? Now, what we're seeing here is Ruth One, overstepping what Naomi told her. And two, we're seeing Ruth mash up some good old Jewish laws again because the Leveret Law, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was when the the wife of a man was supposed to be married. If he died, she was supposed to then be married to his brother, 
which helped protect them, women from poverty and helped keep the lines of a very small nation going. So, but that doesn't really fit the situation. Boaz is not a brother to Naomi's husband or to her own husband. But also wrapped up in this is a concept called the law of redemption. And the law of redemption, redeem is a legal term for buy back. And so if someone was poor, one of the ways they could get out of debt was to sell themselves or their property. And that meant that that property left the family. And as Elizabeth Hayes told us two weeks ago, land is wealth in Israel. So there was something called the law of redemption allowing a, a member of the family to redeem, to buy back that land. So essentially what Ruth has done is she's following the instruction to ask She's pulled a Sadie Hawkins here. She's asking for Boaz's hand in marriage, but she is also asking for the protection of Boaz over Naomi. She's asking him to buy Naomi's land so that Naomi will also be provided for. She wants to fulfill her commitment. Well, ultimately, Boaz agrees to do exactly that. So we see Ruth just trample all over the Jewish laws, and instead of aggravating Boaz, it raises up in Boaz this gracious heart of response. It's a beautiful, beautiful response that we again see, another act of hesed. And so it turns at the end of the, the story, it turns out that they in fact do marry. Ruth and Boaz do marry. And at, despite her having been barren for 10 years in her prior marriage, God gives them a son. And the son's name was Obed. And Obed then had a son named Jesse. And Jesse's son was David, King David. And ultimately then, of course, the king of kings, our own Jesus, comes from that line. Well, there's a lot going on here in this story. And it makes me think that one of the reasons that Matthew included Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus is this concept of the difference between the letter of the law, which Ruth could never quite grasp, and the spirit of law, which Ruth and Boaz grasped beautifully, and as did Naomi. In Matthew chapter 5, just four chapters after the genealogy, we get the story of Jesus telling probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, um, after the Beatitudes, we start to see a repetition of this pattern where Jesus says, you've heard it said, and meaning a reference to the law, but I say to you, so here's an example. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But then Jesus goes on from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and this is what he says. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So we see this movement out of the letter of the law into the spirit of the law, the hesed, the gracious love of God being poured out. And so the book of Ruth serves as a signpost, an advent signpost to the coming incarnation of Christ the King. Well, why do we care? This is the point where in our small group we used to say, so what? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to you and me that there's this story in the book of Ruth about three people who could not for the, their lives stay within the lines of the law. Well, there are lots of things that we need to consider here this morning. So I wanna take, ask you to take some time. I wanna ask you to take a few moments today or tomorrow. Read the book of Ruth, read it with fresh eyes and ears. Enjoy the beauty, 
of the story of Hesed being repeated over and over again. But I also want to ask you to dwell for a few moments on what does Hesed mean for you? What does it mean that the God of the universe loves you with no exit strategy in his love? What does it mean that at Christmas, Christ came, took on flesh, lived among us, and gave us a gospel, a gospel that took outsiders like Ruth and like the family that we're, uh, we're adopting, the, the family that are coming as refugees. The gospel takes outsiders and makes them insiders. What does that mean? So I want you to think for yourself, what does it mean for me? I'll just tell you about my own experience of Hesed. I am, as you can tell, I'm a rule follower. I like bright lines, but I also find that I can be an angry person and I can be an ungenerous person. And there are lots of other things in my life that when measured up against the Hesed love of God for me, show me that I haven't really taken the Hesed. Buddy Childress likes to say that the, the longest 18 inches is the 18 inches between the head and the heart. Have we taken God's Hesed love for us into our hearts? You might be someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, but if you can grasp onto this Hesed love that God has for you, maybe you will find that Jesus is someone that you could align yourself with. Or maybe if you are someone like me who's grown up in the church, it's time to step back and look at your life again. Do you really understand God's love for you? And if you do, how does that change how you deal with yourself, your fear, your anxiety, your snap judgments of people? And how does it transform then our understanding of our relationships with others? Are you able to extend the kind of grace and love and tenderness and compassion and pursuing love amongst your friends, amongst strangers in the grocery store, reserving the use of your horn on the interstate? What is it that God's Hesed love is calling you to do or be differently because Hesed has made it from here to here. So I want you to take some time this week, even as I will be doing the same, to try to discern what is it in our lives that change when we have fully grasped the depth of God's Hesed for us. Well, friends, it's a deep challenge that the Book of Ruth offers us, maybe a surprising one that you hadn't thought about before, where rules get obliterated and grace abounds. For God so loved the world with no exit strategy that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you came to teach us that the love of God is a love with no exit strategy. That no matter what we've done or failed to do, you love us. It's not about the rules that we follow or the, the laws that we keep or even how well we behave. It is about your love for us and how we then respond to others in that love. Thank you. Thank you for your love with no exit strategy. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.